Welcome to the Columbia Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Balkum, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Now, enjoy the message. Hey, Columbia, it is a great weekend to be here, and I'm so glad to see so many of you in this worship experience. I know a lot of people are traveling, and a lot of people are trying to make their way back. Now, Chris Clifford already went to preaching, so I feel like I should just pray and we should be done. I mean, that was enough for me. Uh, but I got to close this series out, so um, let's, let's see if we can do that. Before we do, you know, this weekend is a number of things. It is sort of the unofficial beginning of summer, though I'm a little confused. Is it summer or is it fall? I can't quite figure out today which it is. I hope it's the beginning of summer because I'm ready for some summer. But it's also, and more importantly, Memorial Day weekend is the time that we celebrate the sacrifice of those who have defended our liberties and given their lives in doing so. We kind of treat it sometimes like Veterans Day. It's not Veterans Day. We are grateful for all of you who are active, uh, actively serving in our military or our veterans. But we're even more grateful and should be even uh, more... more cognizant today of people who really gave everything they had in order to defend our nation. So what I like to do on Memorial Day is to ask any of you, if you're at home, you can do this too, but if you have somebody that you're remembering who gave, it could be a colleague in the military, it could be a parent, it could be a grandparent, um, it could be a brother or sister, anyone who has given their life in the service of our country, would you just stand where you are to remember them? Uh, keep in your mind that person or these people and just stand where you are if you would. And let's give, let's give thanks for them. Father, we are truly grateful for those true patriots who've gone before us and who have defended our right to be here today freely, to worship and honor and praise your name, and to live as true believers. We thank you, Lord, for our nation. We thank you for the way you've blessed and used it. We thank you for those you've given who've defended it. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, let me give you a little sort of uh, thought about where we're headed. First of all, next Sunday's a one-off sermon. I haven't done too many of those in a long time, but it's not a series. It's a series of one. It's on baptism because next week is Baptism Sunday. I want you to, I really want you to put it on your calendar to be here, you know, shift everything else aside to be here at five o'clock next Sunday evening for an all Columbia baptism. That means all the congregations in all the languages will be here to baptize those who've made professions of faith and to hear them uh, come out of the water and, and scream and holler, to hear people scream and holler when they do, to hear people complain, uh, complain, proclaim Jesus is Lord. They do complain about being wet. But to proclaim Jesus is Lord is just a magnificent experience. It's faith enhancing. It causes you, if you're a baptized believer, to remember the day that you gave your life to Christ, the day that you were in the waters of baptism. It's just a magnificent thing. So we're canceling all ignition groups next week. I've heard a couple say they're going to meet anyway. That's fine. That's your choice. But we are, we're not going to ask you to meet because we want you to bring your ignition group here. We want this to be a homecoming. We hope you'll do that. So next week, a one-off sermon on baptism. After that, I am starting a new series, and that new series is on soliloquy. Do you know what soliloquy is? It's, uh, it's a dramatic 
uh, word. It's a literary word. Um, it is, it is self-talk or self-speak. Often in a book or in a movie, we overhear somebody speaking to themselves. And of course, when we talk to ourselves, God is always overhearing us. So we're never having a completely private conversation. But one thing the past 15 months have taught me and one thing this moment is talking, uh, teaching me is to monitor carefully my self-talk. What I say to myself, about myself, about God, about the church, about the world, about other people. And I, I sort of uh, was tipped into this when I was reading in the Greek again the story of, of the prodigal son. And I noticed how the prodigal son spoke to himself. And I I noticed his self-correction. And so I I thought to myself, I wonder how much of this there is in the Bible. And it turns out there's quite a bit. And it begins with God speaking to God's self, which is really an amazing thing. And that's where we'll start. And then we'll conclude with that story, the prodigal son, which will also be the first of the next sermon series on coming home, which will take up the rest of summer. So that gives you a sense or an idea of where we're going And I think it's going to be a really exciting series, but to me, this series on belief has been more important than any I've preached in a while. For me personally, what it has caused me to reconsider, what it has caused me to think, how it has caused me to speak to myself and to my God has been really significant. I want to take us somewhere we haven't been today, and that is to the book of Acts. So, you know, primarily what we've been doing is to look at the teaching and the talk of Jesus, at his stories, at how he spoke to the apostles. And that's where I've been focused on his use of the word believing, which uh, is recorded in Greek as pistua. That's where it struck me that Jesus was always talking about belief in God the Father, God the Son himself, and God the Holy Spirit. He never used the word in any other way that I can find, and I've looked very carefully. And then I've used Paul and some other writings of the New Testament as commentary on the teaching of Jesus, which in a way, if you think about it in the New Testament, Paul's writings are really commentary on the gospel and on its effects on on life and how it impacts the church. And so the New Testament is kind of like the gospel and then commentary on the gospel. And so that's how we've used it. But there's one book that I have completely ignored to this point, and it's amazing that I would, and that's the book of Acts. And the reason I say that is that the word or some form of the word pistuo, to believe, occurs some 40 times in the book of Acts. So it's almost as much as in the Gospel of John. It's an incredible preponderance of this word. And so I want to turn my attention today to Acts and in doing so to ask, what is the impact of belief upon the church of Jesus Christ? How does believing and shared believing, how does it shape the culture of the church? And I believe the book of Acts gives us some pretty good clues about how it should. Now, when I ask you, what is the future of church, I'm pretty sure that many of you think about this because many of us who've been here quite some time, we have been looking toward building this building for some 15 years. In 10 years of really hard work, raising the money, you know, going through all the processes, sort of every congregational opportunity for us to buy in together to this dream, and what a strange moment to be building a new building. It's just a strange moment. You understand we're not coming back as the same Columbia that we left 15 months ago. And I I think if you're not the pastor, you don't know just how true that is. I mean, we 
it will be yet for us to, to see, but we, we could easily be 25% smaller right now than we were 15 months ago. And let me tell you why. First of all, we've had a lot of deaths, a number due to COVID. I think when I hear people say, has COVID actually impacted our church? If you know how many COVID funerals I've done of people who span age brackets from 35 to, to 80 or 90 even, you know, yes, COVID has affected us, but not just COVID. It's the number of people we lose in any given year. And for me, the saddest thing of all is to recognize that some people who were with us when we were proximate last are not with us now. They're in heaven when we return. These are faces I won't see again in the congregation. Now, that may make you sad. It may not. But for a pastor, it's heart-wrenching. In fact, uh, last week we were in a business session, which was virtual. Maybe, uh, I don't know if we'll keep doing those or not. We'll see. But in that virtual session, what will happen is while I'm on the session, people are constantly texting me about things that are going on. That's the interesting thing about Zoom meetings is there are 50 meetings happening in the midst of this one meeting. And so in the midst of this, Brett Flanders, better known as Brett the Builder, Brett the Builder texted me a list that had come from our agenda for the day. And the list was the list of people who'd passed away in the last quarter. And he said, brutal list. He just said, brutal list. And it was. I looked at the names on that list of faithful Colombians Many for years and years, and, and even ones who've come recently, people who were incredibly faithful, and to just sit there in the middle of that meeting and mourn those people just was a moment of pain and agony for me. We won't see these people until we worship in heaven, and that's, that's sad. It saddens me that they could not worship here in the final months of their lives, and probably you too. We've had a lot of people move. Now, every time I hear of some great family that is moving, and I heard of another one this week, you just may as well stab me in the heart. I just walk away with tears rolling down my face because in a normal time, we lose a lot of people. That's D.C. That's the way it is here. This is a transient area. People are constantly coming in and going out. But in 15 months, we've had two waves of people, and we haven't had the waves of people in late summer and early fall, I pray we will this year, who have come to sit in their seats and to take their places of leadership and to take their places of volunteering and to take their spiritual roles in the congregation. We've been through two cycles where that hasn't happened. And for a D.C. area church... It's just painful, just hard to realize that's true. And we've had a few, not many, but a few people who just got mad at us because we weren't wide open all the time without masks, without whatever. That infuriated them. They thought that's what the church should do. I'll tell you why later we thought it wasn't as I get into Acts. But those people said, if you won't open, and some of them just literally said to me, like it was just my decision. If you won't just open wide, we're going to go somewhere else. What do you do? Like, if this is all it takes, if that's all it takes, then, then, you know, what can I do about that? Or because we didn't sustain your political candidate or whatever the case may be. So a small handful of those people and every one of those is painful in ways that a pastor can't possibly describe to you. So in this time, we've lost a great deal of strength if that strength is numbers, if we understand biblically that God uses moments like this to create a remnant 
to whittle down to the most committed believers, then maybe we'll see fruit from this, but that's hard in this moment to kind of conjecture about, isn't it? So a lot of people have asked me this question. Aren't you sad that we're building this building? Don't you wish we weren't now? And the answer is absolutely not. Though I will tell you, and and the elders will back me up on this, that when we had the final decision moment, I was the one who said, you think we ought to hold off on this? And the elders, the lay elders said to me, are you smoking crack? God has pushed us in this direction for all these years. They didn't literally say that, but that's what they meant. God has pushed us in this direction for all these years, and we're not going to stop now. God knows what he's going to do with with that facility. Now, the answer now, as I look at it, is I'm glad we're doing it because we never would have done it. We never would have gotten around to it if we didn't go ahead and, and press forward. But there's a lot of rebuilding to do here. Not just building, but rebuilding. The bad news is that people are probably less likely to think about church today than they have been at any point in this nation in the last 100 years, certainly in your lifetimes. The good news is there are a lot of lost people out there. And the question is going to be, do we have the passion for them to know Jesus that the early church had in their culture where they were outcast, where they were a small minority, I mean a much smaller minority than we are by far. Do we have the passion they, they had? That's the question that the Holy Spirit has been planting in my head. And in fact, that's what we spent our staff retreat on this, this season. Our staff retreat was proximate together for the first time in these 15 months. We've done two virtually, and this one we were together on two Mondays. We weren't at the retreat center. We were here, across there, but we were together. And as I taught them, I had them read one book to sort of put them in touch with the mind of an unbelieving person who is seeking God. And I had them know about, not read, but another book, because that book's over 700 pages long. I taught them a book, a sociological study that's really fascinating. That book's called American Grace, if you're interested in reading it. It's written by Robert Putnam. Robert Putnam is one of the foremost sociologists of our day. He does not share our faith perspective, so it's purely a scientific study for him. And there are hundreds and hundreds of studies that are done, of surveys given across the past 75 years to reach the analysis that he reaches. And this is what he says. He says, our nation, with regard to the religious landscape, has experienced a shock and two aftershocks. The shock, he says, came in the 1960s. How many of you were alive to remember that shock? He said that was a time when everything we had stood for came unmoored in essence. Anti-institutionalism, all sorts of reconsiderations, some of them very positive of civil rights and other things, But more than anything else, a new understanding of sexuality, a different understanding of what sex was all about in a hundred different ways. And so Putnam says that shock unmoored the nation from what had been its religious underpinnings. By the way, the height of Christian worship or of civil Christianity, as we call it, in the United States of America was in 1956. 1956. That's 
the biggest church attendance percentage-wise that we've ever seen. I've actually seen bigger numbers since then, and those bigger numbers came in the 1980s, and he said the first aftershock was in the 1980s, or at least that's when we could see it, and that aftershock was a reaction to or a response to the liberalization, if you will, of the nation. And it came primarily in evangelical Orthodox churches like ours. So he said that was the first aftershock. Now, I was a student pastor in the 1980s, and I always tell our student pastors, you just have no clue how different it is now than it was then. You have no earthly idea. You can't even explain to them. Let me tell you something. I could have gotten kids to the church every single night of the week if I wanted to. No problem. And whenever we had something, they just all came. And they came in droves. So we had a Monday night. Now imagine this, those of you in Northern Virginia, the whole homework, everybody's going to get into Harvard thing, all the sports, all that stuff. On Monday evenings at 7 o'clock, we had this mass community gathering in the huge fellowship hall of the church in Richmond where I was a student pastor. And it was not at all unusual to have over 150 kids show up, about 100 of whom were affiliated with our church and then another 50 kids. It was unreal. That was another high point for a certain kind of church and we live in that area. And some of you were, I'm looking out there, a few of you were students in that area and you might remember that ear. And then he said, there's a second aftershock though. And this is what happened with the second aftershock. That strength that was built in the 1980s, very quickly people started to say, you know, we could use this politically in some way. And so a certain branch of the church became quite politically motivated and set its sights mostly on shifting things in the nation. And there was, he says, a second aftershock that was a reaction to that, which is to say, if that's what Jesus is about, not that there's anything wrong with being conservative or with shifting things conservatively, but if that's what the church is about, if that's what Jesus is about, I don't want any part of that. And so there was a huge reaction to that that continues today. Started in the 1990s. The 2000s were the big epic of it, and here's the result of that. In the United States of America today, for the first time in the last four months, for the first time in 100 years, less people claim affiliation with a religious community, be it synagogue, mosque, church, whatever, than at any time in recent history, especially since World War II. 52% of Americans now say that they are either nuns or duns. They're nuns, meaning I just don't care about it, I have no affiliation, or I'm done with it. And by the way, the interesting thing is those aren't all young people. A lot of people will say to me, well, that's because of the next generation. Yes, in part, but it's also every single other age bracket has gone with them. Every single other age bracket. Now, you live in D.C., you have neighbors, you tell me, because I know my neighbors pretty well, how many of them got up this morning and went to church or even watched it virtually? And I, I think you will understand that the percentage of nuns and duns in our region is far higher than 52%. I would guess 70, 75% of persons in our region now, especially as a lot of young people come in, a lot of them are nuns and duns. Now listen, that 
is our field. Those are our people. That's who God sent us here for. That's why we live in this era. That's why we are Columbia right now. So whenever I've been prone to be depressed and go, Lord, how come now? The answer I get is, I knew what I was doing when I put you there now. This is our moment. There's no point mourning what used to be, bemoaning what has happened. The point now is to look forward and to ask the question, how do we replicate the Pentecost Acts 2 movement in North America in our time? How do we re-evangelize North America? That's the only thing that matters. Now, do I have hope? Oh my goodness, I do. Two things give me hope, more than two, but I'll talk about two of them. One of them is the history of Columbia. It's not an easy history, founded right at the tail end of the Civil War by seven abolitionists. It almost went out of existence several times, kept managing to get down to a remnant and to grow back. This church has recreated itself again and again and again and again and again over its long history. Also, I I see who's here. I see who we do have, who God has placed in our midst, and that gives me great hope. But the biggest hope that I have is the over 2,000-year history of the Church of Jesus Christ, which survived the bubonic plague, for goodness sake, and in our nation survived the great flu of the early 20th century, and the Great Depression, and everything else, every world war, every whatever, and at the end of the day, the church of Jesus Christ is still the front line of God's mission on earth. We like to say we're on mission. We're not on mission. We are the mission of God in the world to redeem human beings. That's amazing, and it's powerful. And that always takes me back to the book of Acts. Now, as I told you, we see the word pistuo in Acts some 40 times. Now, the word pistuo means to believe or to entrust. And I've suggested to you that with only one real exception, one real strong exception, every time this word is used in Scripture, every single time other than that one, and even that one is modified, it is used to speak of belief in one thing and one thing only, and that is the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, or the resurrection, or whatever, is attached to the being of that God. Nothing else we are called to believe in. Not our political party or persuasion. Not our house. Not even our family. Nothing else is worthy of belief. This is an amazing word. Now, since I focused on the Gospels, let me tell you something fun and interesting, and that is, you know, if you were reading this, you might well come to me, unless you're Carl Stegenga, who loves to study this stuff. He, he's been hitting me up constantly. I've loved it, Carl, don't get me wrong. Even sent me a book so I could double-check my Greek. So we got, we got here because he actually was amazed that I was right a few times, by the way. So, so what did Jesus actually say? Well, Jesus did not use the word pistuo. I can assure you of that. In fact, I doubt very seriously that Jesus knew much Greek at all. I don't, Jesus was a Jew who spoke Hebrew 
and lived his entire life in a Hebrew culture, a Hebrew society. I doubt he ever spoke anything but Hebrew or Aramaic, which is spoken Hebrew. So whenever you see the words of Jesus in English, it's kind of interesting to consider this. They are twice translated. That is, the apostles who were writing in the lingua franca of their day, Greek, the apostles heard the words of Jesus, and then they translated them into Greek so that people would read them around them in that time. And whenever they did, we can see things that they highlighted. So when John, for example, offers the convention I taught you last week to believe in, it's for some point of emphasis. This is what Jesus meant, and this is how we're going to convey to you that Jesus meant this. And they use the word pistuo or some form of it to convey every time that Jesus talked about believing or faithing. But Jesus never spoke this word. Certainly never wrote this word. So if that's the case, we're called to wonder if we're biblical scholars and we're interested in such things, what do you think Jesus actually said? Now this game goes on a lot. So if you read a lot of New Testament scholarship, New Testament scholars are constantly asking, what do we think was the Aramaic that Jesus actually spoke that then was recorded into Greek? Now, some words are left untranslated because they're hard to translate. And one of them is important to our consideration here. What Aramaic did Jesus use to speak about belief? Probably a word that you know well or you think you do. Now, before we do that, I've got I to do a little culture test here because this is always intriguing. I've got to test you guys. So get ready because I'm going to ask you a question. You've got to answer it. Is it amen or is it amen? Okay. Do you know what I'm asking here? This is no small thing. Actually, if you tell me, I'm going to tell you where you're from. Is it amen or is it amen? And what kind of church you were raised in if you were raised in a church? So if it's amen, I want you just wherever you are and at home, I'm going to hear you if you do this. I want you just to shout at the top of your lungs, amen. amen. Okay, that's a lot of people, okay? That tells me, that tells me a lot about your heritage. Okay, so let me, let me ask you this now. If you're reared in a real proper tradition, maybe, or you come, if you're a Yankee, something like that. So if that's the case, it's amen. So if it's amen, I want you to shout at the top of your lungs, amen. Oh, that's weak. Now, the thing is, I can't tell for sure if that's the same number of people or not, because ameners shouted a whole lot louder than ameners. Ameners, you know, they just, it's just like the formal close to a prayer. They have a little prayer that sounds, Lord, we beseech thee on behalf of our people. And at the end they go, amen. But ameners, just every time they agree with something, they go, amen. Woo! You know, it's like, it's like shouting for your team or something. I mean, that's, it's a little different. Here's the thing is, it is neither the Hebrew word is achmin. Achmin. Anybody ever been to Russia? So in Russia, they say this all the time. They say achmin all through the worship service. We took Kelly when she was really young to Russia, and she was in these worship services over and over again where people, they, you pray. When you pray in a Russian church, every sentence, they, at the end of the sentence, they go, achmin, 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 achmin. And so we were, that, that night, we all were praying as we always did. We used to have these things called circle prayers. We'd light a candle or something, and we're in this little Russian apartment. We're gathered in this tiny little bed, and we're praying at the end of the prayer, Kelly picks up her head and she says, Amin. It's Amin. And Jesus almost certainly spoke that word when he talked about 
what we know in the Greek as pistuo or in the English as believing. Some form of that word, achmin. And it's left untranslated any number of times in the New Testament, but not when it comes to believing. Achmin lecha. Achmin lecha means I believe in Hebrew. But the thing is, you can modify the word achmin in about a hundred different ways in Hebrew, just by marking it differently or modifying it with another word. And so Jesus probably used combinations of these words, but almost always when he spoke about believing, I can assure you somewhere in there was the word achmin or amen or amen, depending on where you come from. So when we say that word, what does it mean? Well, when I was a kid, I was taught that it meant so be it, so be it. I grew up in an amen church, by the way, so I was taught that it meant so be it, may it be so. But that's not really true. Once I learned Hebrew, I learned that this word is much deeper, it's much broader. In fact, it's very hard to translate. This word means something like this. It means as it has been spoken, so it is truth. As it has been spoken, so it is truth. So when you are praying and you end your word, you end your prayer with amen or amen, when you do that, you are saying, I believe in the one to whom I am speaking. That's what you're saying. And whenever somebody on occasion, even in a church like Columbia, I say something or Chris does or whatever, and you say, amen or amen, what you're saying is, you have just spoken truth about the God in whom I believe. So imagine Jesus speaking achmin, lecha. As we get to this word pistuo, to believe or to entrust, which is in fact the verb form of the word pistis, which means faith. So we're really talking about faithing which is far more than just assenting to something, isn't it? And noticing how this word is used in the New Testament grabbed me. So I offered you a formula last week. I'm going to expand it a little. Faith plus whole life discipleship is believing. The Holy Spirit gives the faith. It's a gift. It's the source of our salvation. Our peace is to discipline ourselves in the death and resurrection, the cruciform presence of Christ. And therefore, in that sense to become true believers. Now I'm gonna turn my attention quickly to Acts because this won't take long. This teaching is really, really obvious. So obvious, I'm a little embarrassed that I've never preached the two passages together today that I'm about to preach. Now this one, Acts 2, 42, uh, Acts 42, 42 through 47, that, I don't know what that 44 is about, I left that there. That, that is... That is one I've preached a thousand times. That's the first record of the church after Pentecost. The first snapshot, like a Polaroid, of what the church looked like. But this and the second use of the word pistuo in Acts are really interesting when they're taken together. Now let me say, when Dr. Luke wrote Acts, most of the time he used pistuo to indicate that new people had come into the church. New people had come, become believers in Jesus, had been baptized, and had entered the life of the church. But in these two instances, he uses the word to label the early believers, the early followers of Jesus. Let's look at it. Acts 2, 42 through 47. They, those people who came to Christ after Pentecost, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe 
at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Now, here's the most relevant verse for us, verse 44. All the, what? Believers were together and had everything in common. All the believers were together and had everything in common. I know people who resist the use of the word believers to talk about Christians. That's a shame. I worry a little more about the word Christian and the way it now is applied because sometimes it really has no meaning in our culture anymore. Even in the book of Acts, it doesn't show up until chapter 11. The word Christian was first used in Antioch to speak of the believers. Up until that point, until the gospel was taken to Antioch, which is relatively late, well, I mean, it's only a matter of years, but it's not the earliest part of the church. These people were known as the believers. They were the people who had eschewed everything else and put their faith in Jesus Christ, the risen one, and thereby only in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And look what the gospel did to them. Believing changed every part of their lives. Verse 44 is the most radical verse in this section. First of all, the believers were together. They were unified in mission and purpose. Don't get me wrong. I can assure you they disagreed on all sorts of things. I can promise you they had many different opinions and ways of doing things, but what united them was their common belief in Jesus because when you are a minority like they are, the one thing that segments you from the rest of society is the thing that stands out. It's the thing that that stands forward. It was the first thing that marked them. They were together. And not only were they together, but they had all things in common. Meaning whatever I own, you also own. They weren't socialistic by any stretch of the imagination. Whenever somebody says that, I'm like, you don't understand. Socialism is imposed by the government or society. They chose this. But they were communal. If you need something, it's yours. Take it. They were willing to sacrifice whatever they had for the good of this burgeoning movement. And I don't think you could have said that about anyone else around them in Roman society. And so, therefore, it it is really intriguing to me. This is why they grew so dramatically. They were more concerned with spreading the love of Jesus Christ than they were with their own rights. Now, I get nailed whenever I say this. I'm all about rights, although we keep adding to the list constantly what is a right and what is a privilege and what is a responsibility. I'm all about that. I'm so grateful to live in the United States of America. I would die to defend these rights, and probably you would too, but my life is not about these rights. It is not about mere liberty. It is about freedom in Christ, and that freedom is eternal. It's forever. Can I get an amen? Amen. I've just spoken truth about the free one who created free people for his glory. Now, this is really a huge deal here to see how it changed them, these believers. And this is how Luke identifies them. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every single day, 
Every single day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Hang on to that for a second because it's the next scripture that illuminates this. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They just constantly hung out together, praising God and enjoying the favor of who? All the people, believers and unbelievers alike. And therefore, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This short paragraph is still the gold standard for the church of Jesus Christ. It is still the description of the values that we are to hold because we are the Pentecost church, the movement of the Holy Spirit, the movement of the resurrected Lord in our day and time. So in any given time, we are only incarnating these values This togetherness, this selflessness of the early church. And if you're like me, you read that paragraph and that's a tall order. Not too many of us read it anymore and go, you know what? That's exactly what the church is like today. But that's precisely what the church is called to be in every day. That's it. Now let's get to the next scripture because it makes this way more interesting. And I never noticed it. Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. How did I find this? It's the second use of the word pastuo in the book of Acts that regards the naming of the people. So this is the second time they're called believers. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, as we've already been told. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. Now let's stop here for a second because that illuminates chapter 2. Day by day, they met in the temple courts. Well, not exactly. Because where was Solomon's colonnade? We, by the way, typically call it Solomon's porch. If you ever go to the Holy Land with me, remind me to show you Solomon's porch. See, what's going to happen is we're going to get there, and you're going to say to me, I want to see the Western Wall. Everyone wants to see the Western Wall. Because people still worship there today, especially Hasidic Jews, but all sorts of people. They stick little notes, little prayers into the wall. When you look at this, every day they have to go through and pull off thousands and thousands of thousands of little pieces of paper. Every single day is just covered. If you go late in the day, it's covered with these little notes. The Western Wall is the last standing wall of the temple. But it's also the direct entry point to the temple. So if your life was about sacrifice, animal sacrifice, and about that process of being redeemed, then where you want to see is the place people went to sacrifice those animals and to be forgiven by God. And that is the entry point that's behind the Western Wall. So that's the Old Testament. That's the sacrificial system. Solomon's portico or Solomon's porch or Solomon's colonnade is on the exact opposite side of the temple. It is on the eastern side of the temple. Now, if you know the temple, and I would suspect that not many of you do, but maybe somebody in Sunday school taught you this years ago and you remember it, the eastern side is where the women's court was the second least favorable court at the temple, second only to the foreigner's court. So really, if you look at the temple, if you look at a picture of it, what really the women's court was was the fellowship hall of the temple. It was the social hall. So they would go there and they would talk. And the Christians were on Solomon's porch, which is outside 
the outer women's court. So really they were out on the patio of the temple, but not on the temple proper. Why? Well, first of all, they weren't probably allowed there by this point. But secondly, their religion dramatically transformed them. One of the things it transformed is the way they saw women. The way they understood the place and the leadership of women. And because their movement was so much built around fellowship and not sacrifice, so much around being together and believing together, they gathered in the place they could jabber and chit-chat and eat together all the time. So they brought their picnic lunches to Solomon's porch and they sat and they ate there every day. And that was the first Wednesday night supper. That's what they did. That was the first potluck. If you said amen, you know what a potluck is. If you didn't, you might not. Come talk to us later. So they would, they would gather here behind the temple on the opposite side of the prominent side, on the opposite side of where all the action was, and they just didn't care. It didn't matter to them whether they had status or not. It mattered to them whether they were together or not. It mattered whether the common place where people went, they could be seen and heard. The next sentence teaches us about that. No one else dared to join them because they weren't the cool kids. And Christianity didn't make them a cool kid. It made them an uncool kid in their culture. No one else dared join them even though they were what? Highly regarded by the people. Now we see a common thread in both of these, don't we? And that is that what really caused the movement to grow was how much the people outside of their faith, those who were not believers, regarded them. And I've got to ask you right now, is that still true today? Is it true? And if it's not, why not? Well, I will tell you I don't believe that it is. And the reason that it's not is because people can't tell a significant difference between those of us who are believers and those who are not anymore. And that difference is not just about our morality or what we do with sexuality or whatever. It's that we're not any more generous than the rest of the public too often. And that we scream and holler loudly about our own rights so often that they wonder whether we care about those around us. And in my opinion, though you'll have to ask the rest of the elders whether this is true, the reason they made a decision that we would honor the mandates that were given and for a period of time we would not worship though we knew well it would cost us is because it's not just about us in here. In fact, far from it, it is more about how we are perceived out there whether people understand that we care enough for them, that we are willing to put that right to worship on the shelf for a moment just to say what you're going through, us too. And for the same reason, we love you and we care for you, we will do what is right in this moment rather than just to holler and scream for our rights. Being admired outside of the walls of the church means paying a high price. It means that we are willing 
to live as people who are utterly transformed for Jesus Christ because the church of Jesus Christ is the one institution that can never exist for itself and still be the church. It must exist for the good of everyone else. And see what happened? Nevertheless, look, nobody would hang out with them. So how does this happen? Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Let's close this out. This is really simple. Believing changed everything about those early Christians. Believing changed them in such a way that the outside world respected and regarded the way that they lived and more importantly, the way that they loved. And believing shaped a church that was unified in purpose and in mission. If we want to be that church, those are the same qualities that believing has to bring to us. Because at the end of the day, what defines us is our shared belief, no matter what happens, in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Believing must be the defining quality of our very lives. And more than that, only true belief changes lives, which is why so many Christians remain unchanged. They have not yet decided to believe only in God. Only true belief changes lives, and only true believers can be used of God to change the world. Are we equal to the call? What is the church of the future? Well, I can tell you for sure, based on over 2,000 years of history, there will be a church. And people will be saved. And they will be baptized. And there will be massive changes in cultures. The way people love each other and treat each other, even now it's happening all over the world. More Christians are living today than all the rest of the periods of time combined in this world. But what will it be in North America? And what will it be in Washington, D.C.? Well, that's up to you. And that's up to me. And all of it depends on our capacity to care more about our shared belief and our desire to have others share it too than anything else in our lives. That's what it will take. Father, make us, by the power of your Holy Spirit, your Acts 2 church in this place and this time. Bind us together by our believing. Change us through our believing. And then, Lord, redeem your world and every man, woman, and child you're drawing to yourself through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Columbia, I love you. I pray for you every day, and it's so great for us to be coming back together. I look forward to seeing those of you I haven't seen yet. You go now and ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington to the world. Go, believers. Have a great week. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro D.C. or Northern Virginia area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to columbiabaptist.org. 
That's columbiabaptist.org.